Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Portfolio manager Paul Ma joins us on the program to share his insights and strategies on how investors could potentially construct their portfolios heading into 2023. In our current market environment, Paul explains how investors can deal with volatility. He says the answer is rebalancing, specifically selling the winners and buying the losers. People believe the market is going to be volatile, so rebalancing will help mitigate that. He adds annual rebalancing outperformed the buy and hold strategy by 35 basis points per year over the last 20 years. He says you need something beyond stocks and bonds in your portfolio, such as commodities and alternatives. They help in a high inflation environment and diversifies your portfolio. Paul adds if inflation goes high, the consumable commodities do as well. To add to that, there are global geopolitical implications affecting commodities. When we have wars and embargoes happening, we must be very careful with commodities. This podcast was recorded on December 6, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Tell, tell us how you digest ultimately so many of the pieces of economic data that we've heard. And, and now we're in, you know, now we're in a, a Fed dark period. So we're not hearing anything. The blackout is there. But how do you take us through what we've heard? Actually, uh, there's a lot of noise, but one has to focus on the key piece of data, which is inflation. That's it. That is tasked. With the fighting inflation, that's it. So that's what you want to focus on. And I'm not talking about forecasting inflation. And, and those economists on TV have been calling peak inflation for the last seven, eight months and keep getting it wrong, 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 wrong. I'm talking about let it print. When you start to print lower, actually print lower, right? Like core CPI did with 6.3% print. That's lower than 6.6% the month before, et cetera, right? Start printing lower. You actually, that's when market actually start to rally because you ra- realize that, wait a minute, Fed is tasked with fighting inflation. Therefore, inflation start getting lower. Fed will be more relaxed instead of raising 75 basis point rate, maybe 50 basis point rate. And that rally, that's what where it comes from. That's it. Okay. Everything else is noise. Midterm election, election, uh, war, all that. They're all noise, guys. Focus on inflation. So what do you take then from the numbers? So, so okay, so we saw inflation by a couple of different measures track lower, but then we saw the jobs number, sticky wages, as expected, actually. I mean, the numbers were higher than expected, but the fact that wages are higher is kind of expected. Yeah, it is. And um, so that sort of is one input into core CPI. Again, right? a lot of things feed into core CPI. Wage inflation is sort of people making more money. You think they'll go out there, spend more money, cost of goods inflation to go higher, service go higher. But you may, may or may not. We don't know, right? So, so that's sort of uh, people still monitoring the inputs into it. 
real estate prices is falling down and all these other inputs are coming the feed into uh cpi are, are coming lower so therefore i think one has to balance it out right uh, all that different factor but next month we'll get another core cpi print let's just see so if you're letting it print or you know you sort of suggest let let it print that that implies that you're following the data fed is data dependent they tell us all the time um but that sort of implies some volatility around the data prints themselves. You know, people need to trade over whatever the print is. How, how again, do you expect investors to sort of deal with that? Well, uh, it's one thing we talk about for the last two years uh, at the session right here. It's about rebalancing, right? Um, rebalancing, what does that really mean? It sounds really easy. Or you, you know about rebalancing. and But it really is, is rebalance is sell the winners by the losers. What, what does it do is that in January, when everybody was bullish, all right, if we rebalance, you get to curb that enthusiasm, down into that enthusiastic feeling in the market, right? Exactly. So in January, rebalance into enthusiasm, right? Curb that enthusiasm. In, in the last month or so, everybody was bearish. You got to rebalance to that, buy into that bearishness. Uh, so, we, so if you believe the market is going to be very volatile and we don't know what's going to happen next, Rebalance is your best friend. That's it. In fact, there's great research backing up right here. You see the buying hold strategy returns about 6.9% for 60, 40 portfolio for the last 20 years. Pretty good strategy, buying hold. But if you rebalance, whether it be monthly, quarterly, annually, or with a four or 5% threshold, meaning 60, 40 goes 65, 35 rebalance, right? You outperform the buying hold strategy just by clicking the rebalance button. That's it, right? So, right. uh, so, Basically, the idea here is that, uh, you know, if the annual rebalancing, in fact, outperformed the buying hold strategy by about 35 basis points per year over the last 20 years, and compound that, that's a lot of money left on the table without clicking that rebalance button. So rebalancing rebalancing is, sort of a- is buying, selling, what? I mean, just sort of point to what, you know, it, it sounds so simple, but give us a little that's more a detail. Simple, right? It's another way of saying buy low, sell high, or buy the things that fall down, that fell down a lot, right? In, in, the, in the last month or so, I see large cap growth fell down a lot. Uh, you, you want to buy into that, rebalance into that, right? Uh, maybe trim a little bit of commodity winners that you had in your portfolio. The idea of uh, uh, rebalancing in, so buy, buy losers, sell winners. So this is a great discipline you have, and it has worked really um, just to, you can see the data, right? Work over time. It is something that is very contrarian because of your, by human nature, you want to buy the winners. And sell to losers, right? And, and last month, you want to go to cash, right? <laughs> so rebalancing is your best weapon against that, that sort of emotional that behavior, right? And to be contrarian. And it happened to be the right call. Coming back to what we started out with and what you said everyone needs to focus on is, of course, inflation. Um, talk us through how that works for the 60-40. Because inflation is tricky, really, for both bonds and stocks. I mean, what, how do people... Take a look at that. Um, inflation has come down a bit, right? But we don't know where you end up next year, right? Would it, you know, six stay around a really high level or really comes down? So we don't know. We're going to let it print. But one has to be prepared for inflation stick around high. So when if, if inflation sticks around high, we talk about in the past that stocks and bonds generally have positive correlation in that environment, high inflation environment. Uh, where they actually go down together, a horror, right? That's what we experience here today. 
So in that environment, you really need something beyond stocks and bonds to have more diversification to your portfolio. And we talk about two, two things where they are combined to commodities, alternatives, or they all, call them all alternatives, right? Something beyond stocks and bonds that offers more diversification to your portfolio, if that happens. That's fascinating. You mentioned commodities in there, and I just I just wanted to sort of get some of your thoughts on. I mean, there's some uh, there's some some intuitive things going on with commodities. I mean, if if the idea is ultimately to sort of slow down the economy, which is which is what interest rates rising will do, you do in fact see that kind of happening. But there's there's a whole another story, obviously, to the commodity story, which happens to be the energy security story, and that has many many implications. Um, take us there. What what do you think we should be expecting to see within the realm of commodities in light of the fact that there are new dynamics at play on the global stage? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the first of all, commodity is definition of inflation. The inflation goes high, commodities do well. So that's what keep it simple like that, right? Um, and we're talking about consumable commodity, meaning that oil, copper, iron ore, right? We're not talking about precious commodity like gold and silver. Gold and silver works. Remember the chart we showed you previous time. Really work only if there's a re real recession happening while there's a inflation, stagflation environment, right? When there's growth and there's inflation, the consumable commodity like oil, copper, et cetera, work really well. As you pointed out, uh, Pamela, that this global geopolitics implication about all these commodities, right? Because we don't, uh, you know, it's a lot of commodity wood we don't produce here. We don't dig it up here, right? But therefore, when uh, we have wars and embargoes happening, we've got to be very careful with that. And that's where you want to be, right? And, and, and right now, your day, I think those commodity, I think energy is up 50% or something like that, your day, positive. Commodity in general is about 20% positive, right? So those are the winners right now, your day. We've been putting those things in a client's portfolio for last year. So we saw that inflation was going higher and higher. And that, that was sort of the theme. But right now, as inflation comes down a bit, you got to sell some of those winners, trim some of those winners right now. Right now. But how do you balance that with the discuss? I mean, and for instance, we, we also mentioned off the top that China is loosening, you know, COVID zero policies. We're seeing that happen. You would think that would create more demand on the oil side, on the, on the commodity side. Um, what are we missing there? Yeah. So the thing is, um, uh, China's policy is very uncertain. There's a loosening of zero co um, COVID policy. They realize it just doesn't work. You need herman, uh, herman immunity to develop. Uh, that's what I think the right policy is. But but they're loosening up, which means Chinese equity should start to rally a bit based on that, right? But there's still a lot of uncertainty. Will they invade Taiwan or all these other questions we cannot just, we have no idea about, right? But all we do is that in China, same thing, rebalance. because when they're really low, you got to buy into it, right? We, we don't know what the future brings. We know that there's a, a action to every reaction, reaction to every action. Action of zero policy, COVID policy is not working. They'll do something to fix it, right? So that's a great time to buy into that, rebalance into that as well. Stick with um, stick with the rebalancing because you can't really see. But I, I guess the question is, well, and maybe the answer is rebalancing, but I guess the question is yeah. where, if if inflation sticks a bit, um, do we stick with commodities to offset that? Um, so this past year, we actually did a study of, uh, we do about 3,000 portfolio review a year, uh, 30,000 over time. So we have very good data on what we do. 
for our advisor clients. So this last year, for example, out of the 2,561 portfolio we did, um, you know, uh, 23% came in with alts, uh, any category alts, including commodity, right? And going out with 44% of portfolio with, with alts, meaning that we added alts to client portfolio. And a lot of these alts are market neutral or um, managed future that were either 0% return the year they were up 30, 40% return. That serves a diversification purpose for our uh, client's portfolio. And that's the whole point, right? Is that in higher inflation environment, there are asset classes that are less uh, correlated with stocks and bonds, could go beyond stocks and bonds. So commodity is one of them. Some categories, liquid alts, like the market neutral and managed future or others that you can look at, look, look into to diversify your portfolio. But again, it's data dependent. Next year, if inflation has really come down, right? Number uh, rebounds into stocks and bonds, you'll be just fine. But if inflation sticks around pretty high, let's look into other category. Couple of questions about inflation and really just getting your view. There are so many views out there, but it, it's really important to hear what you have to say on the question of whether getting inflation down to a lower level, but not 2% is possible in your eyes. And also sort of this discussion of, you know, how long will they hold this higher level of, of interest rates? How long do you think they might have to hold the higher level of interest rates? Um, the Fed has the tool to fight inflation. They've done this before in the Volcker era, so they know the playbook, right? It's really just jack up the interest rate to fight inflation. Um, so they have the tool to bring it down if they really want to. And data, they don't look that bad, really. I know wage inflation is a little bit high, but uh, if you think about comp- composition of CPI or PCE, uh, I think uh, it's like 30, 40% of PCI, uh, CPI is is housing, guys. It's housing. So yeah. you if the interest rates, the mortgage rates is seven percent in the U.S. right now, six seven percent, people are not buying houses, right? If that's the case, housing price will come down a bit, and the input thirty forty percent into CPI will be lower. So I'm looking at these taste Schiller data that of housing prices rolling over. I'm thinking, guys, I know where CPI is going. So so things don't look that bad at all right now. Right, it's so interesting. Tell us a little bit about the demographics of the world. I feel like, you know, that was something that it's almost like we talked about it pre-pandemic. And and then there were a lot of other things to worry for a long time about. Um, Is is demographics, when we look at who's leaving the job market, for instance, really back on either the front burner or, or certainly not on the back burner anymore? Right. It's so interesting. Tell us a little bit about the demographics of the world. I feel like, you know, that was something that it's almost like we talked about it pre-pandemic. And and then there were a lot of other things to worry for a long time about. Um, is, is demographics, when we look at who's leaving the job market, for instance, really back on either the front burner or, or certainly not on the back burner? Yeah, demographic is the most important driver over the long term for, for investing, for our GDP, et cetera. Right? Because demographic, is destiny. Uh, U.S. you know growing very slowly, about uh, one, uh, 1.8 babies per per woman of fertility age, right? But that actually is much better than uh, say uh, Europe, right? Represented by Germany here, uh, uh, or Japan, right? That's an IFA country, develop a market, IFA country. They have they're losing population. So um, if you know the uh, remember back in economics 101. 
the long-term GDP equation is made up of labor force growth plus productivity growth. So if um, if we're, Germany is losing population, right? There's less people working there. Doesn't matter how hard each German works, there's no way their GDP will be great next 20 years, right? And if that's the case, then investing in your German, German company becomes kind of hard because, uh, um, you know, their GDP is not doing great. How would their company do well in the economy? So among developed nations, even though we complain the U.S. about our you know, lot more t- retirees, we're looking pretty good versus uh, um, our developed nation uh, kind of counterpart in Japan and in Europe right now. And, and what about China? I mean, it's sort of a glaring example on that because they had population growth for so many decades. Um, it's now in uh, it's going in the opposite direction. Uh, what, what does that mean ultimately? I mean, I think we're used to the fact that growth out of China will be less. But how much of an impact actually is the demographic story? Now, uh, China is actually uh, bordering. They're, they're losing about 20, 30 million people per year. Um, you know, more debt than birth, right? And because of that, they're worried. They're really worried. They're, they, they actually abolished one-child policy in uh, 2016. Um, and then they, um, but the women there are still having only one baby. So they did a survey of why are you still having one baby? I abolished one-child policy in 2016. Well, it turns out um, they, they say that they are they're worried about housing costs and education costs. So if you think about some of these seemingly unrelated policy that China has last year too. For example, going after uh, Evergrande housing development to make sure housing costs are affordable, right? And and make these uh, for-profit education company make a non-profit. The stock dropped 90%, but why did they do that? Well, because they know economics 101 that they need more babies, right? They need more babies and that, um, that you know, address the education costs and housing costs problems. So we'll see those policies working or not, right? But uh, but you can see that sort of, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of losing population a bit, right? Not a critical stage yet, but they can hopefully reverse that a bit to get, um, to make China great again, right? To have more babies in there. Uh, but another factor is that China is, uh, still have a, a middle class, uh, growth middle class, a double digit rate. So they have more people who have more money in their pockets. So that's a factor that's actually helping them to be a place that's more investable than not. How important do you think, and this may just be an opinion, but I'm curious what you think in that situation when, you know, education costs are are an issue, housing costs are an issue for having uh, a bigger family. Financial planning strikes me would would be an area where where the government or policy, more financial planning, more ability to perhaps do that through stock markets, capital markets development. Do, Do you see that still trucking along forward? It's been interrupted by the pandemic, but it sounds like it's yeah, important. Yeah, they need a 401k plan. So right, I mean, some version. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. all these versions of uh, um, retirement planning that uh, U.S., Canada, we have very good safety nets, right? They're looking into that for sure. Um, but that being said, I just, um, I'm reading language from uh, Xi Jinping. They still think it's so obsessed with Taiwan, right? But what they need to do is more diversify that retirement nest egg in China a lot more. Very interesting. So short term, long term, um, the discussion of, you know, invest, not really investability in China, but, you know, sort of the short term case, the longer term case. What do you see there? Yeah. So short term looks pretty good, right? Because we have uh, a, a really bad policy that's about to be eased, COVID zero policy. Um, the long term is one where they had to figure out there's two forces right there for China. One of them is really positive, which is 
middle class uh, household growth, double digit. The other one is not so great, they need reverse, which is uh, declining population slightly right now, right? But there are countries that have both factors working for them, like India, right? India, if you bring that chart again, uh, the last chart, India has double digit household growth, uh, middle class growth, middle house, middle class house, household growth. And look, if you look at their uh, birth rate versus death rate, they're having population growth as well. So that's why among all major economies, India has the highest valuation for their stock market because it is just doing so well the next 20 years. And we know we know it because demographic is destiny. There's is unavoidable. They will do great. Do you look at the Middle East for, for investment options? I mean, just because some of their demographics speak to this this overall pattern uh, that you're talking yeah, about, or is it not an area? Yeah, so the problem is investability, right? So if you look at emerging market, MSCI EFA or MSCI EM, right? Yeah, Middle East is the smallest slice, tiny little slice. So it's not a what you need to worry about. It's 40% China and then South Korea, Taiwan, and and Brazil, things like that's what you need to worry about. Middle East is very small slice. I remember I was looking at one time Egypt, there's like three companies that you can invest in, really. And um, so that's a problem with Middle East. They're still developing their uh, their industries and companies, right? Um, you can buy Saudi Aramco, I suppose, but it's just a bet on energy, right? So that sort of thing is still, they're developing their capital market. So that's why the demographic or GDP doesn't quite translate into how to make money for investors. Looking uh, again to sort of the impact on inflation of everything to do with, we'll talk about global trade in a minute, but I'm, I'm actually kind of curious because it's it, it's quite top of mind is the discussion of of supply lines, really. I mean, it's it, it's interesting. There are strikes around the world. Um, and and, you know, I think there are a lot of headlines looking at that. What does it spell get past the politics of it all, but what does it spell for inflation? Uh, what it spells is onshoring and nearshoring. So we're going to see a lot more companies bring their production, right, to North America, to Canada, to Mexico, to U.S. So this this this, this area can be linked by, by rail. That's it. You, can, you know, have a train moving. We're not having embargoes and tariff on each other, right? We have NAFTA already. And that um, so those countries will really benefit. I can see Canada doing pretty well. You can see Mexico, Mexico doing pretty well, right? So uh, I think the onshore and nearshoring theme will, will continue because a lot of these uh, CEOs realize, holy cow, um, geopolitics is becoming less stable globally. I need to be able to uh, secure my supply line and not have it be embargoed, having problem where iPhone factories, just protests in China, all that. I cannot deal with that, right? I need to have a more stable supply line. So you see a lot more onshore and nearshoring. I know TSMC, the semiconductor company, is building a huge factory in Arizona, right? Why? Because what if China invades Taiwan? How do you produce chips? They need to have a more stable country to put those production in. So what is the short-term, long-term for that? Because that uh, is in development, but it's not going to happen by Christmas. So it will take time. But uh, that means uh, if you are underexposed to Mexico, underexposed to Canada, U.S., right, just invest more there. I think that that is sort of the when things are being developed, stock market has a way of pricing in things six months, a year in advance. Right. So as they're being developed, things are happening. Those are great country to invest in. And again, India, 
Vietnam are great countries to invest in too, because they benefit from people having a sort of a backup plan to China, so to speak. So, yeah, that's okay. one of the, a lot of these uh, things. And again, geopolitics affects inflation, affects supply chain. All that is in the mix, and people are rethinking their supply chain. So just returning a little bit to the idea that as we see these data points continue to come in, and, and they will, and, and they get traded upon, obviously, um, just just reminding everyone what they need to look at. So they need to look at inflation, look for it going in the direction of down. Um, what else do they need to do? So definitely look at inflation, right? Make sure that's a data point you want to care about. Everything else, just ignore it, right? Ignore other noises that people like to talk about. Uh, number two, focus on uh, rebalancing because we don't know what the future brings, but it's really has been proven that if you rebalance your strategic allocation, whether it be 60, 40, 80, 20, match client's risk profile, right? Just rebalance to that instead of saying, I'm too scared. I want to, I want to go to cash right now in, you know, or, or that back in January, I want to be all in, right? Do the opposite how you feel. That's what rebalancing does. Do the opposite how you really want to do. Right. Okay. It's fascinating to get your thoughts at this particular moment, because obviously we're watching all of this swirl a lot, uh, swirl around. Look forward to catching up with you again, Paul, but all the best for the, uh, for the season to you and your family. Thank you very much, Pamela. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.